Dixie Road, how are we doing? Good. Hey, if you're watching online, you're just checking us out, and I have not met you, or you're visiting in person, my name is Mike Lotzer, I'm one of the pastors here. You're joining us in a sermon series on the life of King David. Most people, even if you didn't grow up in church, know about David and Goliath. David kills this big giant, and we're calling this series, There Will Be Giants, <clears throat> because in David's life, and in your life, and in my life, there will be giants. There have been giants, and not just real big, tall people trying to kill us, but giant things like financial stress and medical conditions and marriage difficulties and divorce and stress and death and all sorts of stuff. And we're pointing to this figure, David, King David, who points us to the real David, the ultimate David, Jesus Christ, who killed the ultimate giant of sin and death with his death and resurrection. Today we'll be in 1 Samuel chapter 22. I'm reading from the NIV, and we're going to have a little discussion about caves. So as you turn there with your Bible or your device or check it out on the screen, I will be reading from 1 Samuel 22, verse 1. David left Gath and escaped to the cave of Adullam. When his brothers and his father's household heard about it, they went down to him there. All those who were in distress or in debt or discontented gathered around him, and he became their commander. About 400 men were with him. From there, David went to Mizpah and Moab and said to the king of Moab, Would you let my father and mother come and stay with you until I learn what God will do for me? So he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him as long as David was in the stronghold. This is God's word. So if you haven't read this whole story recently or at all, just to kind of give you a little context, David is kind of a, a three-hit wonder in chapters 16, 17, and 18. He kills Goliath. He, he's kind of this obscure shepherd boy who trusts God and is prepared in the wilderness by tending to sheep and, and defending his flock against lions and bears. And he comes and he, he kills this giant that's taunting Yahweh, the God of the Israelites, and, and Yahweh's name, and he stuns everybody because he's like a teenager, and then he becomes this warrior, and he rises to national prominence, and people are singing ballads about him, and the king, Saul, who initially is impressed with David, starts to become very insecure and jealous about David, and in Saul's disobedience, he forfeits his, his throne, and there begins a long process of Saul kind of white-knuckle holding on to the throne that God put him on, refusing to just admit that he, he is no longer the anointed and that this young David is going to take his place. And Saul gets manipulative. He, he gets physical. He throws spears at the guy. And, and you just see David trying over and over to please his father-in-law by this point. Saul has his daughter, Michal, marry David as a manipulative tool. And everything that David does to try to honor the king just infuriates Saul. And now he's on the run and he's being hunted with the full force of the Israeli military. And what do you do when you're on the run? You hide in a cave. And he's in the cave of Abdullam. I think we have a picture of that on the screen. Interesting cave, Abdullam. I did a little research. Uh, it actually sits on a high point on the horizon so you can see miles away if an enemy is advancing. So it's tactically up high, but it's also very deep, and it goes into an elaborate tunnel system of caves, so it would be very easy to defend from, but not a real cozy place that you want to call home. Think about a cave. It's damp, and it's cold, 
I don't know which one it is, a stalactite or a stalagmite, but, you know, the, the ones that come down from the top, I mean, that they're formed by just water dripping over and over. I mean, what an annoying sound, right? And David finds himself in a place he doesn't want to be. He finds himself fighting the giant of desperation. And I wonder personally if any of us have been there or are there or will be there in the future, a place where we feel quite desperate. You know, I, I just think of our congregation and, and people come to mind. We have a friend of mine who is on house arrest, stuck in his house. So his own home probably feels like a cave right now. We're trying to encourage and pray for him in this season in his cave. And we have multiple people in uh, Fairview uh, Ridges and Southdale and the VA hospitals and hospital rooms. And they don't want to be there. You never want to be in the hospital and you're in this cave. It feels like a cave to them. And some caves are, are more luxurious than others. I got to do a wood fire sauna last night with some friends of mine. And that was a good cave. God was kind of sweating the impurities out. And we were talking and getting honest about our life. And so caves aren't all bad. But the fact is we are all going to experience a season of desperation and we will have our time in caves. To structure our remaining time together, I just want to ask three questions. I'd like us to look at who, what, and why. Who was in this cave of Abdullam? What did they do in the cave? What do you do in caves? And why did God allow them to be in the cave? Why were they? What's the big picture going on here? So the first point, if you're taking notes, is simply this. Who was in the cave? According to the message translation, the answer might surprise you. Look at the translation here of the text we just read in the message. Not only that, but all who were down on their luck came around losers and vagrants and misfits of all sort. That's descriptive. David became their leader. There were about 400 in all, and actually that number balloons to 600 in a few chapters. They're not in the cave long, but there's a group of people in this cave of Abdullam, and they're discontented, they're in debt. If you're too much in financial debt in this time and part of the world, you can be sold into slavery. They're, they're kind of revolutionaries, but Eugene Peterson really gets to the point. He says, they're losers. They're not winning in this game of life. They're vagrants. They're kind of homeless. And they, they just feel... Like, they don't fit. They're misfits. And I wonder if anyone today here feels like they can relate to that. Maybe you have felt at times or do feel now that you're kind of a loser. Like, this is what winning looks like in life, and this is how my life has turned out. And I've just, you have this sense of you had a, a script for your life, and you wanted it to look a certain way, and it didn't, and it doesn't, and so you feel like you've lost. Or maybe you come to church today and you feel kind of that spiritual homesickness that I think all believers feel at some time, like you're a vagrant. You've lived in different parts of the country, you've had different jobs, good experiences, bad experiences, but you've never quite satisfied that longing that C.S. Lewis writes about when he says, if you have desires in your heart and nothing in this world satisfies them, could it be the case you're made for another world? You feel like a vagrant. For some of us, ever since junior high school or high school, we felt like a misfit. We didn't fit in any one group. We didn't understand the trends and how to be cool and where to sit at what table. And we've always felt a little bit like a misfit. If you feel like a loser, a misfit, and a vagrant, the good news today from God's word is God sees you, he knows you, he has a plan for your life, and you're not going to stay like that. What's really interesting if you read the context and keep going and read through chapter 23 and 24, 
They're not in the cave a terribly long amount of time. Probably felt long for them. But these same people who are described as losers, misfits, and vagrants will later be described as David's mighty men. And then the, the story shifts. It talks about their exploits, and you think you're reading a Marvel movie script or something. It's like, who are these people, and where do they come from, and why are they so courageous? They're the losers, the misfits, the vagrants, who spent time with David under David's leadership, and something happened to them in that cave that changed them. You see this in the Gospels. Jesus recruits people who, who don't fit anywhere, who are rejected by other people, who are the, the professional sinners of the time. And, and three years under Jesus' leadership, they become world changers. They turn the Roman Empire upside down. They're uneducated fishermen like Peter who all of a sudden have the basilica, one of the best pieces of architecture in human history, just named after him. So who is in the cave? People like you and me, losers, misfits, and vagrants in process. That's who is in the cave. What did they do in the cave? Now, this is fascinating because the text doesn't really give us a lot of description, and so we have to translate the Bible in light of other passages in Scripture, in the Bible. We, we see Scripture through the lens of other Scriptures. Psalm 142, 1 through 7, almost certainly was written by David, almost certainly was written in the cave of Abdullam. Let's get that on the screen. I cry aloud to the Lord. I lift up my voice to the Lord for mercy, David writes. I pour out before him my complaint. Before him I tell my trouble. When my spirit grows faint within me, it is you who watch over my way. In the path where I walk, people have hidden a snare for me. Look and see. There is no one at my right hand. No one is concerned for me. At which point, if he's writing this and reading out loud, all the vagrants and misfits and losers are like, well, we're here. Don't you care about us? It reminds me, I was in Iraq in a um, period of six months where a lot of rocket attacks happened on Thursday nights. We called it Thunder Thursday. And we had some misfits and vagrants and odd folk. And, and they would prepare for these rocket attacks in our time in the bunker with Mardi Gras beads and near beer, like fake alcohol that they imported in that was warm and tasted terrible, and um, then 80s rock music on a little speaker. And so we would go in the bunker when the rockets came, and I looked around, and there's guys smoking cigars, and they're putting Mardi Gras beads on each other and listening to ACDC and laughing, and I'm like, who am I in the cave with? You know, th these, guys are, these guys are crazy, and then the rockets got a little closer, and all of a sudden they take the beads off, and, oh, chaplain, would you pray for us and lead us in a prayer? And they were changed, and I was changed, and we were misfits, and it was crazy, but I relate to David just crying out in that moment of desperation, this is not fun, I don't want to be here. I have a very unknown future, God. He goes on, I have no refuge. No one cares for my life. I cry to you, Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the li living. Listen to my cry, for I am in desperate need. Rescue me from those who pursue me, for they are too strong for me. Set me free from my prison that I may praise your name. Then the righteous will gather about me because of your goodness to me. What did they do in the cave? They got honest, and they cried out to God. That's what you do in the cave. 
You get honest with God, you get honest with those in the cave with you, and you cry out to God. You tell him about your troubles. You know, one psychologist put it this way. He said, if you don't let God transform your pain, you're going to transfer your pain to everybody else around you. Some of you have been the recipients of some transference of pain. You understand the phrase, hurting people hurt people. But that doesn't have to be the case. You see, David had a choice. He could have become bitter in that cave. God, you sent these people? These are the recruits to become my mighty men? He could have just focused and marinated on the unfairness of it all. I can't believe it. I've done everything right to honor you, God, and honor Saul. And now I'm on the run. And I'm spending years on the run. And he's so insecure and he's so jealous and he's so wrong and it's so unfair and all that's true, but David doesn't do that. He's honest and he tells God about his troubles even though God knows about his troubles. But then you notice a very peculiar spiritual discipline that David employs. Did you notice when he said, I have no refuge? And then he auto-corrected, just like a spell checker on your computer. He just said, no, actually that's an error. God, you're my refuge. He went from I have no refuge, it feels like I don't have any refuge, to actually, I'm in a very elaborate cave system with a very good defensive posture. You have sent people, maybe not the people I would pick, but the people you picked for me because you see the potential in them that I don't see, and you're technically my refuge. I wonder if you've learned how to do this yet. So much of maturing spiritually, I find, is my willingness to let the Holy Spirit auto-check, to check my thinking and and the lies I tell myself. I mean, you've been there when you're like, this is the worst, it's all unfair, it's never going to turn out. I can't believe they're like this in my marriage and it's not going to be good and I can't believe the doctor told me that news and where are you, God, and it's all bad. And then it's like the Spirit says, is that all true? Is it all that bad? I have no refuge, God. And then the Spirit just whispers to David, and he says, one line later, actually, you're my refuge, God. What area of thinking in your life, in the cave that you're sitting in now, needs to be corrected? What lie needs to be uncovered, and what truth needs to be replaced? If you don't let God transform your pain, you will transfer it. I do experience this. There are weeks when I spend time, sometimes in the car, that's a good cave for me, feels kind of safe, where I just process verbally to God about what I'm thinking and feeling, and I talk to him out loud. Uh, I I like to get in the habit of this more. I've gotten out of the habit of journaling, writing. Uh, I used to just journal, prayer journal. But sometimes you, you get embarrassed even to write some of the, what you're thinking and feeling or maybe you have bad handwriting and so you can't read it. And Whatever way you do this, are you processing with God? Because I have weeks where I don't do that a lot and I become a certain type of person in that week and I have certain character flaws and deficiencies and, and standing up to the, the pains and the trials of life. And then I have weeks when I cry out and I process my pain and my troubles. I tell God about my troubles, my hopes and my dreams, my fears. And I, it, I'm a different person when I do that. And I wonder what this week will be like for you. Will you be the type of person who just goes 
silent with God, just kind of keeps all that in, and you'll get those predictable results? Or will you be the type of person this coming week who spends some time with God in your cave? When I think about the health indicators of our church, I'm always trying to think a little deeper than the obvious. I mean, we're growing numerically. That's all great. We're, we're doing baptisms next Sunday, and we're going to have some new believer baptisms, and that's going to be wonderful. And those are obvious indicators, but, but oftentimes I look to the prayer chapel after service, and I think that's a really good health indicator because if people are willing to process their pain in the, that cave, by the way, we have new furniture, so it's a cave with nicer furniture, um, then, then that shows that we have the right type of desperation. We're winning the battle against the giant of desperation because we're crying out to God. We're being honest with each other like David was, and, and something changed because David insisted God was his refuge. The misfits, the losers, and the vagrants around him started to believe that God was their refuge, and they became a different type of person, a mighty man, a mighty Woman, that could be your story. Who was in the cave? Losers, misfits, vagrants, and David. What did they do? They got honest. They cried out to God. They built those muscles of trust. And why were they in the cave? Let me suggest to you that God uses caves as spiritual hospitals. God uses caves as spiritual hospitals. The people with David were spiritually sick, and in a sense, we are all spiritually in need of a doctor. Matthew 9, 10 through 12 puts it this way. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors, they were really hated in that time and place, and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners. Now, tax collectors were such bad sinners, they were, they were thought to be like traitors against their own people, almost like just the worst type of sinner. They had their own category. How would you feel if like your occupation had its own category? It's like, yeah, the prostitutes and the murderers and all those people, they're, they're just general sinners, but then like there's tax collectors, right? So the religious leaders are like, you can't associate with these people. And Jesus, the Messiah, says, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. It is not the healthy that need a doctor, but the sick. But here's the thing. Have you ever been sick and you didn't know you were sick? I think we all have. You hear these heartbreaking stories of people. I did did a funeral once for a guy who who was diagnosed with cancer, and 23 days later, he died. And it just wasn't obvious to him that he had cancer, and he just kind of ignored some of that stuff, and it happens What if we are spiritually sick with the cancer of sin and sometimes we don't know it because our personality or our upbringing or our natural God-given gifts just have lined up in such a way where it isn't as obvious as it is to others, you know? You don't find yourself in a profession like the mafia and so you think, I'm a pretty good guy, I'm a pretty good gal, I'm, I'm, I'm doing the best I can. Compared to that guy, I'm great. What if God wants you to spend some time in a in a cave, a spiritual hospital, to go through the CT scan, the Holy Spirit, and to really come to the end of yourself because caves are places where you've got a lot of time to think. The Wi-Fi is terrible. There's no flat screen. You can't binge Netflix. The lighting's not even that good. And there's that dripping problem. 
And it's a good place to think. And it's a good place to think about who you really are at your core and what really ails you. Are you in a cave right now, spiritually speaking, going through a season of feeling like, I don't want to be here. I don't want to be doing what I'm doing. I don't want to be in this job. I don't want to be in this marriage. I don't want to be in this group of people. I don't want to be in this season of crazy politics. I don't want to be in this season with regard to COVID. I don't want to be in this news cycle. I don't want to be here. I'm in a cave. I'm stuck. I don't know where to go or what I'm supposed to be doing. Yes, you do. You're supposed to use this time. I'm supposed to use this time to be really honest with God and other people, to cry out to him, and to let God transform us. It's the place where we come to the end of ourselves, where we admit that we are desperate men and women in need of a savior and a leader, that we are spiritually sick and we need something as radical as going under the water of baptism and rising up again to new life. You know, another word for cave is tomb. In the ancient world, if you were a really important person, you didn't just get buried. They put you in a cave and they sealed it shut. And it became a monument to you. And Jesus was given the privilege of being buried in a wealthy person's tomb that was actually a cave. He spent some time in a cave, three days. But the door to the cave did not stay shut. David and his future mighty men spent a relatively small amount of time in the cave of Abdullam, but they were changed. Jesus spent time in the ultimate cave. The ultimate David spent time in the ultimate cave and defeated the ultimate giant of sin and death so that he could lead us out of that cave and all other caves. And we could follow him into resurrection, not just when we die, though that's true, but into daily resurrection, daily walking out of the cave. And time under Jesus' leadership in the caves that we face, it's going to change you. It's going to change me. We might have been born into a system of sin and death, and in a real sense, we can just admit we're all losers, we're all misfits, we're all vagrants, but that's not how we will stay. Think about this for a minute. If Scripture is true, and I believe it is, something to the effect will happen that you will gradually transform in in the process of eternity and in the presence of your Savior. And there will be a day that if you saw you, you would fall to your knees and be tempted to worship you because you'll be so glorious and beautiful and free of sin and made in the likeness of God. You'll be a mighty woman, a mighty man. But that kind of work is best done, is best started, is best forged in caves. Would you pray with me? Gracious God, we're desperate people. We need you. Every hour we need you. Thank you that you love losers, misfits, and vagrants like us. Thank you that we have the privilege to cry out to you and to be honest. Thank you that you bring other people to spend time with us in caves, that you forge friendships and you forge characters. May we see the circumstances of our life for what they are, spiritual hospitals, for spiritually sick people who will one day be mighty. In Jesus' name, amen.